The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space celebrating tenure through the community. Created by Carl Sinclair. Changes. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. A cordial welcome to all of you. My name is Dr. Clemens Rutner. I'm the director of uh, research. Uh, with the School of Languages, Literatures, and Cultural Studies at Trinity College. I am uh, the general host of this uh, uh, school research seminar series, and uh, we're having a very prominent guest uh, today, um, but uh, I'm only here to say a few words of welcome, and then I will pass over to my dear colleague, Dr. Murat Sivilolio uh, from uh, the Department of uh, Near and Middle Eastern Studies, who is going to be your host tonight. Enjoy the talk and uh, thanks for coming. Uh, we are all very excited uh, to have you here. Thank you, Thank you very much, Clemens. Um, thank you all for joining us. Um, for me, it's really a great personal honor and privilege to present Etem Eldem here, uh, professor at the Department of History at Boğaziçi University, also the international chair. Um, of Turkish and Ottoman studies at Collège de France. Uh, Professor Aldam has taught at Berkeley, Harvard, Columbia, and many other places. I'm just looking at the biography provided for this talk, and it says his field of interest include the Levant trade, funerary epigraphy, archaeology, and photography in the Ottoman lands, Ottoman first-person narratives, westernization, and Orientalism. This actually represents only a very small fraction of his real interest. Professor Eldam is probably the most prolific historian of recent decades. Not only that he has written extensively, but he's also the only historian that I know of who can write on the 18th century, 19th century, and the 20th century Ottoman Turkish history with the same degree of authority. Uh, from the conversion of Ayasofya into mosque to Gezi demonstrations from French trade, um, in the 18th century, Istanbul to etymology. He has written hundreds of articles. Um, I know for a fact that he doesn't like personal introductions like this, so I will not continue much longer. Um, I also don't want to take more time than it's absolutely necessary since we have a very limited time period. Um, before we start, I would like to thank him one more time uh, for accepting our invitation on behalf of the Department of Near and Middle Eastern Studies. I'm also grateful to Professor Rutner um, for co-hosting this event. Um, um, and please join me in welcoming Atem Thank, Thanks a lot. Uh, thanks a lot. It's, it's a pleasure and uh, an honor to be here. Um, I'm going to talk about the Alhambra, but I'm going to talk uh, about the Alhambra from a very different perspective than the one we're used to. I mean, um, let me start immediately with some uh, images. Um, I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with the Alhambra. Uh, it's one of the most iconic monuments, uh, and it is probably one of the most touristic places in the 19th century. And it is at the roots of uh, much of what we call Orientalism in uh, the 19th century. Uh, but uh, as I said, I'm going to look at it from a different perspective, that is, look at it from the East, because we generally have a Western vision, a Western uh, um, uh, perspective on the Alhambra. And the reason is quite simple. It's because by the 18th century, um, most European uh, states, travelers, antiquarians, have been interested in the uh, Alhambra. In fact, the Spaniards, and that is not recognized enough in, um, uh, often enough, uh, the Spaniards are the first to have really started discovering the Alhambra. On the left, you can see the Antigüedades Árabes de España, which is a publication of the 1770s, uh, which is the first um, uh, thorough description of the monument with plans, elevations, uh, a very beautiful volume, which was uh, followed by many uh, European or Northern, let's say, after all, um, Spain is in Europe, uh, Northern uh, authors such as uh, Swinburne, for example, on the right. And um, for you, uh, I'm gonna do some people pleasing. Uh, there's a famous uh, Irishman who uh, also documented the, uh, the Alhambra, uh, James Cavanaugh Murphy, uh, who drew uh, some of the most um, 
again, iconic uh, scenes of the Alhambra in 1815. But obviously, the one we remember most is uh, uh, Owen Jones. Owen Jones, who together with Jules Goury, uh, his French uh, uh, colleague who died of the cholera while at the Alhambra, uh, documented in the most remarkable fashion uh, the uh, Alhambra. Uh, this is uh, the title page and one of the plates of the many plates of this two volume publication of the 1840s on planned elevation sections and details of the Alhambra. And um, obviously what is particular about uh, Owen Jones is that apart from being an architect and being a historian of architecture, he was also an entrepreneur. And uh, he's known to have decorated the 1851 World uh, Exposition in, uh, at the Crystal Palace in London. And uh, when that exposition was transferred in 1854 to Sydenham, uh, he um, created a series of historical courtyards, uh, one of which was uh, the Alhambra. So this was the first time that the Alhambra traveled uh, to Europe and met with the uh, general public in, uh, in Europe. It became a major attraction, and you can see it on this uh, engraving. And the the Alhambra discovery, the architectural discovery of the Alhambra was such uh, that you started to have um, imitations of the Alhambra popping up, uh, popping up in practically every capital of the Western world. This is one of the most famous. It is, uh, it's the Wilhelma Palace in Stuttgart, um, which was, as you can see, a perfect, well, a perfect imitation, a bit kitsch, obviously, but it was completely inspired by um, uh, the, the Alhambra and designed by the architect Ludwig von Sand. Um, the Spaniards uh, used this as their trademark. And during these world expositions, uh, they often resorted to the Alhambresque uh, style and to the Mudejar style uh, to design their uh, buildings, their pavilions at the uh, world expositions. What I'm showing you here in 1878 is the Spanish uh, pavilion at the Paris Exposition in uh, 1878. In fact, the craze for the Alhambresque was such that even in the Orient, in Cairo and in Istanbul in the 1860s, uh, there were plenty of buildings, such as the one uh, you can see on the screen, which were designed to resemble, again, the Alhambra. Um, this was a pavilion, a kiosk, that was erected in 1869, uh, especially, especially for uh, the visit of the French Empress Eugenie to Istanbul on her way to uh, Egypt for the opening of the uh, Suez Canal. But it's not just um, uh, it's not just uh, architecture. It's of course uh, novels. Uh, Chateaubriand's uh, Les Aventures du Dernier des Abencerrages is a classic that was published in 1826, and that served as an inspiration for all sorts of followers. Uh, we can think of Washington Irving and his famous Tales of the Alhambra, but also in painting, uh, such as uh, on the left side. Catalan uh, uh, painter Fortuny, who described the, um, uh, the, the massacre of the Avanceraages uh, in 1870 in this rather striking uh, um, uh, uh, work. Uh, on the right, what you have is an even more striking French uh, work uh, by Henri Regnault, which describes the decapitation of the last of the Avanceraages. So, uh, you can see, and I, I'm sure you are already familiar with the idea that the Alhambra was at the center of a fantastic uh, imagination concerning the Orient, concerning uh, medievalism, concerning uh, the Moors, uh, concerning Islamic and Arabic culture uh, that circulated throughout uh, Europe. Uh, one of the pinnacles of this was probably the 1900 section of the Paris Exposition that was devoted to, the, uh, to Andalusia in the times of the Moors with a reconstruction 
of not just the patio of the lions, but uh, of the, the Giralda, that uh, impressive minaret turned into a bell tower um, in Seville. And on the right side, what you see is this fantastic, uh, this remarkable um, a poster by Etienne Dinet, a French Orientalist uh, painter, uh, depicting um, the Moors, a Moorish dancer. And of course, his source of inspiration was Algeria, where he lived, and the women of Ouled Nail, which uh, who were his uh, main source of uh, inspiration. But this uh, brief introduction, um, uh, it gives you a sense of how central the image of the Alhambra was uh, in 19th century Europe. But my concern is with the other side of the picture, the Orientals, because they are not part of that narrative, or at least they're part of it only as objects, as the, uh, the image uh, that is conveyed through the depictions of the Alhambra. But I've discovered uh, that there were plenty of Orientals who during the same period of time visited the Alhambra and um, came out of this experience with all sorts of remarks and, and reactions which are extremely interesting. Now, what, uh, what, what brought me to this subject was an accident as it often happens in history. It was the discovery of this photograph. This photograph, which is weird, it's a weird photograph because it depicts an Arab, an, a, a Moor, if you want, but you can immediately tell that this is a real Arab, uh, posing in a Mooresque uh, corner of, uh, of, uh, of an architectural uh, uh, piece. And thank God we have an inscription on the back of this photograph, which has allowed me to identify the individual and to give it some context. Here's uh, a translation of the inscription on the back. Uh, this is a certain Khalil Jawad al-Khalidi. And for those of you who are familiar with um, Palestinian scholarship will know that the Khalidi family is a major family of Jerusalem. Uh, there are even very illustrious descendants of this family such as Rashid Khalidi at at uh, Columbia University, who are, who's a specialist of, of Palestinian history. So this is a member of this family who in 1912 dedicated this photograph to a colleague of his, a certain Hassan Tarzimbe, prosecutor at the Beirut Court of Appeal. What's interesting here is that he depicts, he describes the place where he had his portrait taken as an apartment in the Alhambra. And he then goes on um, uh, giving a little poem, uh, a very uh, six verses, uh, lamentations, laments over uh, the Alhambra, the loss of the Alhambra, which he says, I wrote in the visitor's book of the Alhambra. So that was the starting point of my, uh, my, my quest, my, my research. Now, the first discovery I made was rather uh, surprising. I discovered that what he claimed was the Alhambra was in fact a studio, a photograph studio, uh, that of a certain uh, a man called Rafael Garzon, whose trade was to basically offer uh, some kind of an exotic corner of the Alhambra to uh, visiting tourists for a portrait. So you can see on the right, one of the many photographs you can find on the web uh, that were taken by this, um, this uh, photographer, by this uh, Rafael Garzon, uh, depicting two tourists. Are they Spanish? Are they British? Are they German? We have no idea. But it's clear that they're not real Moors, but they're posing as Moors thanks to this exotic uh, decor and thanks to uh, the, 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 um, the outfits that Rafael Garzon himself provided the, his visitors, his clients, in order to create the illusion of uh, this, um, uh, this Orient. Uh, here is a, a, a postcard depicting his uh, shop, his shop, and you can see that he is advertising his merchandise, um, displaying all sorts of photographs. And you can guess that most of the photographs are scenes of the Alhambra and of Andalusia, but also scenes like the one on the right of tourists posing in that fake. Uh, orient. Now, that was the first point. 
uh, I could identify that. So he, he was a fake. Uh, he, he was lying about uh, his whereabouts. But he did say that he had signed the Book of Visitors. And going on the web, I discovered that ever since 1829, there has been a book of visitors that has been kept by the Alhambra, by the administration of the Alhambra. And um, obviously there's a big advantage to the fact that this uh, um, book of visitors, uh, uh, 200 years, if you want, of uh, visitors are accessible online, thanks to the Patronato de la Alhambra, the, um, uh, the management of the, of, of the Alhambra. So you can see on the right one of the pages of the uh, of one of the early books, and you can maybe identify here the signatures of Owen Jones and, Ju uh, and Jules Goury, who were there in 1834. So it's a mine of information. This uh, uh, book of visitors was created by Prince Dolgoruki, who was a companion, a travel companion of uh, Washington Irving when they went to the Alhambra in 1829. And his objective was to get rid of the destruction uh, that was uh, plaguing the Alhambra with all the tourists in inscribing their na names and a date on the walls with graffiti. So he came up with a brilliant idea of offering this, um, this register and starting tradition at the Alhambra so that the visitors uh, would be able to sign uh, this, uh, this, uh, this book of, of, of visitors. Now, that's where I found the inscription of my uh, Jawad Khalidi. And indeed, in 1904, not in 1912, but in 1904, he did go to the Alhambra. He did sign the book. And obviously, because it was difficult to get yourself photographed at the Alhambra, he used the most a, a convenient uh, alternative, he went to Rafael Garzón's um, um, uh, tourist trap to have his portrait uh, taken as a memento of this memorable uh, visit. Now, what's interesting, and this is what triggered my discovery of all these Orientals, is that well, while I was trying to find my guy, I came across uh, tons well, tons, let's not exaggerate, but tens, uh, a total of 200 uh, uh, individuals who had signed in Arabic in this uh, book of uh, visitors, which was a discovery um, uh, of, of the, the frequency with which uh, Orientals, uh, in the broadest sense of the word, were visiting uh, the Alhambra. Now, I did some number crunching, and here is the distribution of the 200 or so uh, individuals I've identified. And I've classified them according to rough uh, uh, divisions, the Turks. Uh, I'm not using it as an ethnic term. I'm talking about Ottoman subjects of Turkish culture who speak Turkish and therefore who do not speak or write Arabic, okay? So the Turks in red at the left, the Greens are uh, non-Muslim Orientals from the uh, Turkish parts of the Ottoman Empire, so mostly Greeks and Armenians. In black, what you have is Christian Arabs, that is Arabs from the Levant, mostly from, uh, the, uh, from Lebanon and Syria, Maronites in most cases. Then you have the Muslim Arabs in yellow, the Muslim Arabs who start after the 1890s. These are bona fide Arabs, Muslim Arabs from Syria, from Lebanon, from Egypt. And finally, you have a mass of uh, Maghrebites, of mostly Moroccans, but also Algerians and, and, and Tunisians who visited this place uh, with the obvious advantage of proximity. We know that there are some travelers to Spain already in the 18th century from the Maghreb. So this is the general picture. Now, what I'm gonna do is try to describe each of these categories and try to comment on those because each of these profiles have a different approach and different reaction when faced with uh, the, uh, the Alhambra. Now, let's start with 
because I said these are the closest, they have the advantage of, of proximity. And if you look at one of the plates of Laborde's um, um, Travels to Spain, 1816, you can see one plate describing the, the Patio of the Leones, the, the Patio of the Lions, with a group of individuals who are led by a, um, a, a Westerner, uh, who are obviously uh, non-Western. And there is a legend that tells you that this is a group, an embassy from Morocco, and that these guys are visiting the Alhambra uh, with the uh, people responsible of its upkeep. So we have a pictorial, if you want, representation of this uh, uh, presence. And when I looked at the book of visitors, there were plenty. And uh, for anyone who is familiar with the differences between uh, the Arabic script of the Levant and of the Maghreb, uh, you can spot <coughs> the Maghrebis immediately. Uh, they have a very particular uh, kind of script. And there are tons of them uh, that you can identify throughout the pages of the book of visitors. Most are, as I said, uh, uh, Moroccan. Most are part of some kind of a diplomatic mission, but what's frustrating about them is that they don't say anything. That is, what they end up saying is that they were there, they sign, they date the, uh, the, uh, the book without any comment. And this is frustrating because we would like them to talk about laments and frustration. You know, we'd like to have them comment on some kind of a paradise lost. And this is what characterizes uh, the very interesting way in which the Spanish press covers each of these visits, especially the, 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 the local press from Granada. The, the, the frustration that we don't see in the inscriptions, the, friend, the, uh, the um, uh, Spanish journalists put in the mouth of these visitors. And one very typical example is the illustration on the right side, which is the embassy of a certain El Susi in 1877, the one who signed on the left side. And you can see that he is depicted crying. He is uh, he's hiding his tears behind his hands. And that is the Spaniards wanting him to do practically the same thing as the last king of Granada did, that is cry, uh, Boabdil, cry because of the loss of this, um, this uh, treasure. So um, the, this fantastic photograph we have from 1885 depicts a major embassy that went to Spain, they went to Madrid and whatever, but they did go to Granada. And even though, again, their signatures, their comments are extremely laconic, uh, still, we have a sense that if these embassies made it a, made a point of visiting Granada, it does mean that they were interested, that they had something uh, that they wanted to see in this uh, in the ruins, if you want, of their uh, ancestors. There is one exception. There's one inscription in the Book of Visitors by a, um, um, a Maghrebi which is extremely long. It's extremely long. You can see it here in Arabic. And here is the text. I'm not going to read it, but you can see just browsing through the, um, the, um, uh, the lines that it is exactly what the Westerners expect from the Arabs visiting the Alhambra. That is crying over this loss, um, appraising the beauty this uh, past palace of uh, Nasri uh, splendor, but it ends with something very interesting. If you look at the last uh, uh, paragraph, uh, a Christian king built next to you a palace, which like you lies deserted. He's talking about uh, the palace that was built by uh, Charles V, uh, Charles V, Carlos V. Perhaps you are both awaiting to be inhabited by a monarch under whose scepter Christians and Muslims shall live like brothers. And from this, we understand that this is probably a fake inscription, an inscription that was inserted probably by a Spaniard who knew enough Arabic to, uh, uh, to pretend being an Arab, but who in fact was pushing a discourse, a colonial discourse, 
which was very popular in Spain after the war against uh, uh, Morocco in 1560, uh, dreaming, if you want, of the reunification, but obviously under the Spanish monarchy of Morocco and of uh, Spain. So, so much for the, the Maghrebines. What about my guy, the, the Ottoman Turks? The Ottoman Turks are the first to be seen in this, um, in this book of visitors. And the first one is a very prestigious individual, Kechejizade Mehmet Fuad Efendi. At the time he was Efendi, he will soon become Pasha. He is one of the major figures of the Tanzimat, of the modernization period in the 19th century. And he went to Granada uh, during his mission to Madrid uh, for the majority of uh, the coming of age of Queen uh, Isabel. So he's a diplomat and therefore he left in French and in Turkish an inscription. He was accompanied by his secretary who also signed in French but uh, left uh, his name in, in Turkish and a Greek servant who signed in uh, Greek. And uh, what uh, the, the, the beauty of this is that if you look at the Ottoman sources, you'll find nothing about um, Fouad Efendi's visit to the Alhambra or to Spain. But if you look at the Spanish press, there's a ton of information about this visit because the Spaniards were fascinated. They were fascinated, first of all, because it was their dream come true. They liked to show off their, uh, their remains of, uh, of Muslim presence in, uh, in, uh, in Spain to the Moors or to uh, people associated with the Moors. But they were also fascinated by the fact that the guy didn't look like a Moor. He looked like a bona fide European diplomat, uh, if it were not for the, um, uh, the fez, uh, the red cap he had on his head. So you have fantastic descriptions of his visit to Granada, to the cathedral, to the Alhambra, uh, which uh, is a very lively account, which has nothing to do with the very logical uh, uh, statement he has on the book. Uh, of visitors. Uh, one of the next uh, Ottoman Turkish visitors is even more prestigious because it's Mithat Pasha. Mithat Pasha, one of the great reformists of the 19th century and a victim of the autocracy of Abdul Hamid. He was exiled, ban banished from the Ottoman Empire in 1877. And he went on a European tour. And this European tour included Spain and he did go to Granada. And his inscription is interesting. Again, uh, it's not a very long one, but it gives you a sense that, you know, it is the greatest example to all to see uh, to what extent this great palace, it's like he's learned his lesson. It's like he's read the, um, uh, the description of the Alhambra and of its history from a guidebook, probably in French, and he's giving it back in order to satisfy the expectations of his host. Um, this is the time, the 1870s, when the Ottomans are discovering um, Al-Andalus. Um, the starting point is the publication in the, 18, in the late 1850s and 1860s of a translation or an adaptation of a French history of the Moors of Spain by a certain Ziapasha. And then you have a huge, uh, a, a series of plays. They're all dramatic plays, uh, a bit like, you know, uh, El, El Cid Campeador, uh, Le Cid, uh, by mostly Abdullah Hamid, who was a major poet of the time, but also people like Shemsitin Sami, Wandim Naji. So you have a romantic discovery of Al-Andalus by uh, the Ottomans in the 1870s. Uh, which is crowned in 1888 by a re of the, um, of the uh, history of Andalus by uh, Zia Pasha. Now, what is significant here is that this is a time in history when the Ottomans are growingly insecure. They're losing their hold of the Balkans. They are losing their hold of their European uh, territories. And in that sense, uh, Al-Andalus, that is the loss of Andalusia by the Arabs is something that rings a bell 
it is a dramatic, romantic way of revisiting uh, the fate of Andalusia with a view of understanding what is happening to them at that precise uh, time uh, in, in the 1870s. Now, moving on to the Arabs. Again, the distinction is not national. They're also Ottomans, but the distinction is cultural in the sense that these are guys who know Arabic and who have access to sources in Arabic. And that changes completely the way in which they approach uh, the, the monument. We've seen the Ottoman Turks being extremely uh, laconical or just you know, uh, using some kind of a, 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 a lesson learned by heart. Uh, but the Arabs, they come with, uh, with feelings. Uh, one first example is Mehmet Kamil Bey, who is uh, Istanbul, but he is originally from Syria. So he is an Arab working at the palace. And that's why I selected this caricature of a sycophant of the entourage of, uh, of uh, Abdul Hamid, because I didn't have a photograph of him. But his inscription is very different in the sense that, first of all, it starts with a citation from the Quran, something that no Ottoman Turk is really able to do uh, so easily. And then he is talking about tears. Muslim visitors who come to you depart in tears. How can I leave you without shedding tears? Just like your unfortunate sovereign, uh, Muhammad bin Abdullah the Young, the last of the caliphs, he is uh, experiencing the Alhambra with the kind of sentimentality, the emotion that is lacking on the, uh, on the uh, Turkish side of the Ottoman world. Uh, just one year uh, later, another Arab, Egyptian this time, uh, Ahmad Zakibe, who is well known as an intellectual uh, and a philologist uh, in Egypt, also visits the Alhambra. Um, leaves an, an inscription on the left and even publishes a travelogue of his travels to Europe with uh, many pages dedicated to the discovery of the Alhambra. And he too has a very, very sentimental, emotional approach to the monument, as you can see from his uh, inscription. Is this really Alhambra? Am I really in it? Gods are the palaces and these mansions. Gods are these people who immortalize their glory and merits. So you can see how the register has completely changed. And now we have the beginning of something very different, something that is much more powerful than the Ottoman Turkish take on, the, on Andalusia. It's the Arab, Arabist, Nahda, politically, ideologically engaged um, uh, uh, vision of Al-Andalus. Uh, strangely, they start where the Ottoman Turks have left it. They start again with a translation of one French history of Al-Andalusia. But then what you have is a mixture of romance, but also a very politically uh, um, geared uh, uh, text that are using the Alhambra in order to make a point, make a, a statement against what they see as the major problem of the time, which is colonialism. Uh, this is especially true for the uh, Egyptians who are uh, de facto under, um, under British uh, rule. So they're trying to uh, uh, use the past glories of uh, the Alhambra and of Andalusia to uh, take some kind of a revenge on Europe, to remind themselves of the times when Europe, medieval Europe, was lost in, in Barbary, uh, whereas um, uh, Andalusia was the center of the world, uh, the center of philosophy, of arts, of uh, poetry, of everything. So it becomes a very loaded, a very heavily loaded political discourse that uh, that uh, that locks into uh, the Renaissance movement uh, that we know so well uh, for that period, which is the Nahda, the revival, the Arab Arabist revival. Let's recreate the Arab nation, uh, taking example 
from uh, the our glorious ancestors, the ones uh, whose remains we have just visited in the, uh, the Alhambra. And to uh, really point at the difference between the Turks and the Arabs, I think there's no better uh, example than the inscription that was left by a Turk in 1900 at a time when all the Arabs are so excited about the beauty and about the historical legacy of uh, the Alhambra, this guy, a revolutionary, a young Turk who is an opponent to uh, Abdul Hamid's regime, leaves this long inscription. And what does this inscription say? It uses the Alhambra to talk about anything but the Alhambra. It is about basically uh, trying to uh, uh, criticize uh, the um, uh, the regime of Abdul Hamid. Uh, he he establishes a, a rather facile comparison with the fact that um, um, Abdul Hamid resides on a on top of a hill, Yildiz Palace, and that the Alhambra is also on top of the hill. So what he is interested in is not the glory of the Alhambra, but the fall of the Alhambra. For him, the fall of the Alhambra is a sign of the fate of these uh, dark ages of this medieval civilization, which was not able to resist against the modernity, against the, the, the power of the West. And therefore, this is the fate that awaits us, Turks, Ottomans, if we keep under uh, the rule, if we keep living under the rule of the autocrat, of the tyrant uh, we know as uh, Abdul Hamid. What's even more interesting is that like uh, um, uh, this uh, revolutionary, this young Turk also goes to Rafael Garzon's um, uh, studio. He goes and he has two pictures taken. And instead of posing as an Arab, he poses on the left as a globetrotter. He poses as a tourist, as a modern man. The only difference being, again, the cap on his head. I can even read, uh, zooming into the picture, the, uh, the, the name of the books he's uh, holding together with the suitcase. Uh, they're Bedekers. It's the Bedeker. It's the, 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 the little red Bible of tourists. It's the guide of Spain and Portugal, which he will use to travel through Spain. So he is completely into modernity, not into the past. And the only exoticism he will play with is on the right, that of using a, um, a gypsy uh, uh, costume, uh, the costume that is borrowed the most exotic figures of tourism at the Alhambra, the guy on the left, uh, the king of the gypsies, el rey de los gitanos, or el príncipe de los gitanos, prince or, or Torrojumo, Torrojumo, who is this exceptional character who basically haunts the Alhambra, selling his picture to tourists. So our guy, our modern Turk, when he goes to Rafael Garzón's uh, um, uh, studio will go for the Spanish exoticism. He will react very much like a European. He will exoticize Spain and the Alhambra through uh, this uh, very colorful uh, rendition of, uh, of, of Spain. And the last, uh, the last uh, uh, Ottoman Turk I have on my list is the ambassador to Madrid, uh, who, is, uh, who goes to Madrid in 1909, if I'm not mistaken, but visits uh, the Alhambra only in 1914. And he poses in the Patio de los Leones, in the, uh, the court of the, the courtyard of the lions. And you can see how Western he looks. He doesn't even have the fez, the traditional cap. He has a fedora, he has a hat, and he is posing basically as a, uh, as, a, as a Western bourgeois. In fact, I had all the trouble in the world to find his signature in the Book of Visitors for the simple reason that he signed in French. He didn't use the Arabic alphabet like all his compatriots had, which made him uh, very innocuous, very uh, 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 invisible among the thousands of inscriptions and signatures of 
Western travelers uh, to uh, the uh, to the Alhambra. So, in a nutshell, I'm, I've, I've really rushed you through a century or so of uh, discovery or rediscovery of the Alhambra through the eyes of Orientals. But I would uh, uh, I would uh, probably stress uh, one major point. First of all, that Orientalism doesn't work in one direction only. Most of these guys are learning about the Alhambra through Orientalism, through Western sources. And in some cases, as in the case of most of the Turks, they are in fact internalizing most of the tropes that we associate with Orientalism. The Arabs, the Arabs from the Mashrek are different in that they feed on the same sources, but they take out a different story from it, that of this fascination for a has-been uh, civilization and the hope of being able to bring it back through decolonization, through their struggle for the creation of the Arab nation, for Arabism and for resistance against uh, the, um, uh, the, uh, um, the colonial powers. So again, uh, a, a second important point would be not to think that all Orientals are the same and to see to what extent their origins, the place they come from, the Maghreb, the Bashrek, or, um, or Turkey, as you would call it today, uh, determines to a large extent the profile that they were, uh, will have and the perspective that they will have on this monument. But at any rate, what is, uh, I, I think the most important point is to remember that Orientalism is a two-way street and that the Alhambra is not just something that has fed into the fantasies, uh, architectural, poetic, uh, pictorial, or, or Romanesque of, uh, of the West. It has also inspired uh, the East, but with a much uh, more diverse uh, kind of result, as in the case of the Turks, who by the 1880s, by the 1890s, have pretty much abandoned that idea because they have more pressing urges and because their history, the history that they will try to invent in order to legitimize their, uh, uh, their fate as a nation, is not going to be centered on the Arab past or on the Andalusian uh, past. It's going to be located in Central Asia, in Anatolia, in the Seljuks and, and whatever. So each of these communities have a different story to tell. And um, my last image is a, uh, well, an advertisement, if I may, because, I mean, I've been working on this for years now, and I finally come up with a, uh, a result, I might say, which is a publication the, uh, um, uh, in, in May uh, this year in Paris uh, at the Belles Lettres of this book that sums up uh, this vision of the Alhambra viewed from center and periphery, north and south, uh, east and west, uh, Orient and, uh, and Occident. Uh, so uh, that will be it. I think I've kept it within the 40 minutes I had intended, which should leave us some time for uh, questions and comments if there are uh, any. So um, if that's okay with you, I'll stop sharing and go back to, yes, um, the usual uh, screen. Um, perfect. Um, Thank you very much for this, Rajam. This was really fantastic. I'm sure the audience feels the same way. Uh, we have some time for the questions. Um, I see one here. Um, uh, so fascinating to hear about the original in intention for the book of visitors to protect the Alhambra. Does the book have any other function? Who is the intended audience for any of the propaganda messages from Spaniards um, in Arabic? Okay, well, that, the book is fascinating. I mean, I still don't understand why nobody has used it. Well, I, I can think of some reason. First of all, because it's thousands of pages. And I had it easy because I was looking for the freaks. I, I had an easy way into that, that book because I was looking for those who wrote in Arabic, which makes it easy uh, to browse through pages without having to read the whole stuff. 
But when you look at the, uh, so if, if anybody has the intention, for example, to look at what Irish tourists thought of the Alhambra, good luck with that. Because I mean, uh, you're, you're gonna spend ages just trying to find your Irishmen uh, or Irish women uh, in, 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 the, in those pages, okay? So that's really a, a problem. But then again, just browsing at them, you can see very interesting uh, phenomena. Uh, one is morophilia, that is uh, the, the love of, uh, of Moors, especially by Spaniards. There are striking comments by Spaniards, by, by Spanish visitors, such as, um, Señor, que nos reconquisten los Árabes. God, uh, my Lord, may the Arabs reconquer us. So you can imagine what kind of a mind, what, what kind of a state of mind that visitor was in. Uh, you have plenty of fake Arabs. You have plenty of Spaniards or others who know enough Arabic to try to sign in uh, Arabic and thus play the Arab. So it's with, and, and of course you have, uh, because you always have a conversation between visitors. Um, and especially between French and Spaniards. The French are always there to say, oh my God, this is beautiful. It's such a, it's such a pity that now it is in ruins because of the Spaniards. And then the Spaniards uh, immediately respond, but it's in, a, in ruins because of Napoleon in, in the 1810s. So you have uh, polemical discussions. So it's, it's a mine of information that you can extract from this because there is no intended audience other than the signatories themselves. It is, and what's nice is that it's not open just to uh, major visitors and whatever. They get a full page. When a king or a, or a duke visit, visits, they get a full page. But the others are absolutely average, uh, ordinary people. And therefore it is their pleasure. It's for their own pleasure that they end up signing this. So what Dolguruki did was some kind of hold a mirror in a sense to these visitors because they can watch what they're writing and what others have written uh, before them. So it's, it's a fascinating source in that sense. And again, I had it easy because of the Arabic script, uh, but God, it needs to be uh, used. It needs to be researched. Perfect, thank you very much. Um, another question, do the Greek and Christian Arab visitors have interesting revealing things to say? Yes, well, uh, the, the Greeks, um, the Greeks, I've identified five or six Greeks. I mean, um, they're very European in their, uh, in their appreciation of the, uh, of the monument. Uh, so basically they repeat what the guidebook would say, but what the European standard would say. The ones who are interesting are the Christian Arabs because they are sitting on a fence. They are Arabs and yet they're Christian. So what side of the, of the Alhambra are they going to uh, consider theirs? The fall or the glory? The fall is a Christian conquest, but the glory is an Arab uh, glory. And you can see that there are plenty of Maronites, for example, and you get a sense that the Maronites are really good Catholics. And therefore they visit because it has to be visited, but there's no comment about the past glory of, of Arabs or whatever. But you have other Arabs, Christian Arabs, such as the novelist Georgi Zaidan, who wrote a book on the conquest of Andalus, because he's part of that movement of the Nahda. We shouldn't forget that the Nahda initially was a collaboration between Christian and Muslim uh, Arabs from the Levant and from Egypt who had an Arabist vision. It is only later that this vision became more Islamist. So uh, for a brief period in the 1890s and uh, 1900s, you do have plenty of um, Christian Arabs who have the same enthusiasm as the Muslim Arabs 
for this monument because they're into Arabism and therefore religion is a secondary issue. It's really the nation, not uh, religion. Okay, perfect. Thank you very much. Um, a few more questions. One is from Nilay Özlü. Uh, thank you for the wonderful presentation. I have two questions. What could be the reason for the absence of Maghrebians in Alhambra before the 1860s? Um, and did you come across any sources explaining the guided tours in the palace? Were there any rituals, performances, hosting, etc.? Okay. Uh, well, I don't have an explanation. I mean, the, in history, the most uh, difficult thing to explain is an absence, right? Uh, you know, I mean, uh, how can you document an absence? Because the fact that they ha aren't signing doesn't necessarily mean that they're not around. They might have preferred not to sign. I have some comments about uh, French consular uh, officials who say that they brought their Moroccans to the Alhambra in the 1840s. So there might have been some. And let's not forget that we do have um, Moroccan visitors in the late 17th and uh, throughout the 18th century. Uh, few, but still, we have them. So. I don't have a, a very convincing explanation. I wouldn't uh, dismiss uh, the absence of, um, of Maghrebines before um, 1860 as a total absence. It might be due to other, uh, other factors uh, because obviously the Maghrebines had this, um, this advantage of proximity. Now, frankly, I'm, I'm a good Ottoman. Like the Ottomans I described, I do not know Arabic. So that limits my capacity to go into the details of Maghrebine presence, for example. So I think that what needs to be done is research in Morocco about travelogues, rihlas, for example, of Moroccan visitors and see if there is some kind of an overlap between those and what I've seen or what I haven't seen in the book of uh, visitors. Now about rituals, obviously uh, the press is very precious for that because the press gives you a guided tour. The Spanish, the Grenadine, the, the, the press from Granada is very detailed in its descriptions of uh, Maghrebine visits in the 1880s and up to the 1890s. Uh, it seems that after that, they got bored. It, it, they, they, they thought the exoticism was, the, the thrill was gone. So you barely can find even a mention of a Moroccan visiting uh, the Alhambra. But for the 1870s and 1880s, the descriptions are extremely detailed and they give you really an itinerary of what they're visiting and whatever. And of course, the, the thing is, you are torn between the accuracy of that description and the very um, wishful way in which the Spanish journalists uh, try to imagine the feelings of these guys visiting the Alhambra. So it's always, it's, it has to be handled with, with care. Unfortunately, I don't think we have enough of those itineraries to be able to spot some kind of a, a ritual. Um, I think, you know, uh, it was a pretty, uh, a pretty standard tour uh, with, you know, uh, the, the, the major scenes. And so I don't think that with four or five, we can come up with a, a real ritualization. But I'm pretty sure that, you know, the guys, because the guys who, who um, hosted them were practically always the same, especially Spanish Arabists, people like Al Almagro Cárdenas, uh, or uh, who were specialists who spoke Arabic. And those were the guides to um, these, these foreign uh, visitors. So it is very likely that they would point to certain details that were meaningful, at least in their minds, to these, um, uh, these visitors from, uh, from across uh, the channel. 
Thank you very much. Um, lots of other questions. I don't think we will have enough time to answer all. Um, one question from my friend Fahri um, about the different perceptions of Muslim Arabs and Christian Arabs. I think you have answered that. Um, another from another friend, Özde Çelik Temel. Um, many thanks for this um, great lecture. You gave us a vivid picture of how different individuals represented different types of Orientalism. I was wondering how you would straight um, Occidentalism within the content and context you scrutinized. For, for instance, um, the Ottoman diplomat from Madrid seems to be a good example who identifies um, with representations of the Western world within himself. Thank you. Yes, uh, I mean, and, and that guy is not just anyone. I mean, uh, any uh, Turkish historian or any specialist of Turkish literature would know him. Uh, we're talking about Sami Pashazade Sezaibe. He's an author and he is extremely, he's one of the super westernized Ottomans as Sherif Mardin would have put it. And therefore, not only does he visit with a fedora and with a coat and whatever in a very uh, um, uh, Western way, but he also leaves a, a very short article, a travelogue, but in, in five pages, which was published in 1927. And it is full of, well, a combination of Occidentalism and Orientalism. That is, the Occident is pretty much caricatured, but the Orient, the Arabs, are depicted pretty much as, you know, Bedouins under the tent who had it coming, who didn't have the depth of a civilization that would have made it possible for them to survive against the, um, uh, the, um, uh, the advance of, of Christians. There's another, he didn't, he didn't visit it, but he wrote about it, who goes exactly in that direction. And you know him well, it's, uh, it's uh, uh, he also has a series of articles on the Alhambra and on Andalusia, which are extremely strongly impacted by uh, Orientalist perceptions of, um, of uh, Andalusia and therefore have very little sympathy for the past glory, very different from the Arabs, um, and have a very uh, Western uh, twist. So yes, the, uh, the Ottomans, uh, the Ottoman Turks are pretty much uh, all of them, even the most faithful uh, um, servants of God. I mean, there's one guy, um, can't remember his name, Munir Sureyabe, for example, and he is thrilled by uh, the past of Islam and whatever, but every reference he uses to describe Cordoba or Granada is taken from the Bedeke. So they all are stuck with a, a repertoire of sources that are essentially Western. And that influences a lot the way in which they reflect upon this, uh, this scenery. Perfect. Um, okay, I'm afraid this has to be the last question. And, um, and Nora White, my student, of course, she would ask about women. Um, did you come across any woman signing the book in Arabic or Ottoman? Or was there any reference of women traveling from the Ottoman Empire or the Maghreb? Um, yes. Yes. I have, to be precise, four women. Uh, one is a Jemile Hanum. And I don't know what she is, who she is. I don't know where she comes from. She's probably Turkish, quote unquote, but all she does is sign her name. There's no surname. There's nobody with her, which is weird. So I don't know. The other three are part of a group. Two Egyptian aristocrats. One is Nazlı, Princess Nazlı. The other is, um, what's her name? Sherif uh, Hanım, the daughter of Halil Sherif Pasha. And the third woman is their Circassian slave, Sazkiar. But interestingly, of course, they sign in, uh, in, in French and in Turkish. 
But the Circassian slave, you understand, has an education that allows her to sign in French and in Turkish and to uh, put the date in both calendars, which means she's more of a lady in waiting than uh, a slave or you know how the harem is, the imperial harem is. These three women are not traveling alone. They're accompanied by one male figure, Ali uh, Kemal, the journalist, the famous journalist who was very close to, close to uh, Princess Nazlu. So he's um, the, uh, uh, the, the, uh, the, uh, the chaperone, if you want, of this group of women. But this is a very, again, super westernized group of, of women uh, whose photographs, if you find them, I mean, there are no photographs for the Alhambra, but if you look at photographs of, of, uh, of um, uh, Nazle and, and Sherife, they always pose in hat and in, uh, in a typical Parisian dress. So again, very Western and somewhere in between their Egyptian identity, which is more political than cultural and their Turkish antecedents because they're all of Turkish origin. Um, journalist Ali Kemal is the great grandfather of Boris Johnson, right? This yes. Is, yeah, okay. Yes, but hey, you can't hold him responsible. No, of course. The hub is a community. Okay. Okay. Perfect. Book um, and book cultures, stepping provenance towards the history of the Taiwanese library. As well as being here. The hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities created by Coral The hub is about impact. The hub is for everyone. Here's to the next 10 years.